this podcast is brought to you by John Baldoni, the author of a new book entitled Grace, A Leader's Guide to a Better Us. Please listen to podcast number 726, where John and Greg speak about the importance of being in grace as a leader. John's acronym for grace is generosity, respect, action, compassion, and energy, which are all attributes that the leaders of today need to possess. It takes real courage to be a great leader. And John's new book, Grace, is a roadmap for leaders to follow. Please listen to podcast number 726 with John Baldoni, the author of Grace, A Leader's Guide to a Better Us. You can also learn more about John and his book, Grace, by visiting www.johnbaldoni.com or the book website at www.gracethebook.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And today joining us from New Hampshire is Tim Desmond. And Tim is the author. He's an author of many other books as well, but How to Stay Human in a, I'm just going to say it, fucked up world. Mindfulness Practice for Real Life. Tim, good day to you. How you doing? Good day. It's good to have you on our show. It's good to be speaking with you. Uh, prior to this, we were talking about where Tim lives, resides, and is building a community of like-minded people that are into mindfulness. Um, I'm going to tell our listeners a bit about you. Uh, Tim is a distinguished faculty scholar at Antioch University, teaching professional psychology rooted in self-compassion. He is currently leading a team at Google, Google uh, working to offer affordable, accessible emotional support to individuals around the world. After a troubled youth, Tim was exposed to the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh and eventually studied at Plum Village, which is in France. And Tim was also the co-organizer of Occupy Wall Street. You can learn more about Tim at timdesmond, D-E-S-M-O-N-D dot net is one of the places you can go. He also has a website that is timdesmond.net, which is the Institute for Applied Compassion, which is where you'll find information about this book. Also a free course trial. Tim, just by the way, is that working? I clicked on it last night and I didn't go anywhere. Uh, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm putting it up. For, I'm putting the whole course up for free. Um, okay. So it's it's uh, it's getting moved over right now. By the time people uh, listen to this, it should be uh, easy okay. to find. Great, 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 great. Yeah. So Tim, um, very compelling, moving story that you have. And um, when I was um, on last night, the Google talk that you did, um, you started off your talk with this story that you had. Um, about your wife's cancer and her Mm -hmm. sitting up in bed with pain and then you guys going into the hospital. Um, And it really sets the tone for this book. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you relay the story to the listeners again? You did a great job on the Google Talk. I figured it'd be a great place for us to to start our interview. Yeah. um, So... So a few years ago, um, like right after the 2016 election, um, my wife 
Annie had been battling cancer for um, more than a year. And in the middle of the night, she woke up in excruciating pain. We immediately went to the emergency room and found that her kidneys, a, a recurrence of her cancer, a new tumor had been blocking her kidney. And so what they needed to do is to have a surgery to um, implant a plastic tube into her kidney to allow it to drain into a bag on her leg. And that was a moment for me of this overwhelming sense of just everything is wrong, like nothing is going right in my life. and. Um, that her cancer was back and getting worse and then having to also kind of, we, uh, our son was I think, three at the time and kind of having to help him through that. Um, and it was in that moment that I thought about a story that I've heard Thich Nhat Hanh tell I, countless times over the almost 20 years that I've studied with him. And it's a story about um, meditating in the jungle in Vietnam and watching a banana tree. He, he tells a story where he's in the jungle in Vietnam and he's looking down and he sees this young banana tree with just three leaves just, uh, just beginning to grow. And it's a time in his life in the middle of the Vietnam War in which He's trying to kind of um, to understand or to integrate his intense desire to be of help to suffering people in the world, to, to people who are victims of this war, and his intense commitment to his spiritual practice. And as he's sitting with those two kind of things that seem to be pulling him in different directions, he's looking at this banana tree and it has like one of the leaves is sort of fully grown and dark green. And then the other leaves are still kind of pale and still kind of curled into themselves. And what he says is that looking down at the banana tree, he saw that the, the oldest leaf, the biggest leaf, was fully enjoying her life as a banana leaf, but that it hadn't left, hadn't had to leave behind the younger leaves in order to do that. That it was just taking in the rain and the sun, and that the more that it did that, the more of the sun and the rain that it, it took into itself, the more that it was actually feeding those younger leaves and the rest of the tree. And he realized that his own mindfulness practice is exactly like that. That the more that we're able to nourish ourselves with experiences of freedom, of compassion, of joy, that's the energy that we have to share with the people that we love, people who are suffering. And so it was, it was in that moment that I kind of recognized I need to be able to get in touch with, or I don't know, I don't, want, I don't even want to say I need to, 
But what I want more than anything in that moment is to have something to give to these people in my life that I love so much who are going through this. And if I could get in touch with some freedom, some joy in me, then I'd be able to help them. And if I just am lost in my own despair, then I won't. And so for me, that really, that that story is kind of like the anchor of why I believe that mindfulness practice is so incredibly important for all of us, especially in this, you know, this moment of history with so much suffering Yeah, to be able to have something to offer. Yeah. Well, it's obviously here for us to choose to, to use, to heal. And, um, you know, we'll get to this in a minute, but this, an inextricable, uh, how do I want to call it, connection between suffering and compassion. And you mentioned yeah. that the world can really look fucked up, despair, greed, hatred, stupidity. Um, how can we keep from falling into the deep depression and despair um, with the practice of mindfulness? I mean, really, yeah. in essence, that's a key core to your book. Um, yeah. And, and, what you want to tell our listeners and the people that read this book is that there is a connection here between being compassion and having your own suffering. Um, yeah. And the suffering of the world. I remember a meditation we would do at the, at our, at our practice where we would breathe in all the suffering in the world and then breathe out healing light and energy. Um, I forget the name of that particular meditation, but you probably know it. So, yeah. So the question um, is, is really, how do how do you help our listeners keep from falling into this? I mean, look, it's yeah. pretty easy to look at our world right now and see all the stuff that's going on and just yeah. want to just run the other direction and say, you know, how to, you know, <laughs> get me off, you know? It's actually one of the things that I'm studying right now uh, or that I, over the past few months that I've been studying in this project at Google if if we can think about it like we each have a limited capacity to be able to be present in the face of suffering, um, whether it's your suffering or whether it's someone else's, um, we all have kind of a, a limited tolerance, a finite tolerance to to be able to actually be there with someone who's in pain or with our own pain, to be able to be there in a way that's actually helpful. And there's actually a lot of research in clinical psychology talking about what are the qualities that kind of describe what it is to be present with suffering, with distress in a way that's helpful. There are things like warmth and empathy and sort of being in alliance, um, having some type of hope or confidence, but at the same time, just being uh, this sort of open acceptance. The way that Thich Nhat Hanh describes it is being able to hold our suffering like a, a parent would hold a crying baby, where there's that sort of like open acceptance, and at the same time, the sort of care of like, I'm here for you, I want to help if I can. But 
the thing that's really interesting for me is that it takes me all these words to describe something that really should be foundational, should be like a really important part of our culture. There isn't even a word for the capacities or the skills that allow us to be helpful when someone's suffering or with our own suffering. And ultimately what it comes down to is developing those abilities. You know, the, the, it's, it's always going to be finite, but we can grow our ability to be present with suffering in ourselves or in another person in a way that we can actually be helpful instead of just kind of getting scarred or freaked out by. You mentioned in the book, compassion with equanimity. What do, what do yeah. you mean by that? Because, you know, you talk about holding the crying baby is the archetype for compassion and equanimity. And yeah. that it's the exact, pre, that exact presence that transforms suffering. Um, yeah. If you have no word to describe this, then if you can try and explain to the listeners what compassion is with equanimity. Yeah, I mean, so basically it's this, so if we're, if we're thinking about, let's start by thinking about um, being there with just a crying child. And we can think about um, compassion without equanimity. We could describe as when I see that you're suffering, it, you know, I, it, I really care about that. It really moves me. In fact, I care so much that it's incredibly painful for me to see you suffering to the point that I can't actually be helpful. I'm just sort of lost in my own thing. On the other far extreme, we can talk about equanimity without compassion. So we see this child who's suffering and we say, yeah, kids suffer. It's fine. And we're not at all moved to try to be helpful. We just sort of like see this crying child and we're just like, yeah, that, that, you know, that happens. Compassion with equanimity is the experience, it's just describing something that we all can relate to to some extent of seeing someone who's suffering and being moved to help, like you care, but you also are not so kind of caught by their suffering that it that it um that basically it, it triggers you so that you're no longer actually able to be present with them you're kind of like um it's it's sort of too painful for you to really be there that is a a great way to explain it and i think that you know um, the, in the book, you say that all compassion comes from having suffering and that great yeah. compassion comes from great suffering. Um, yeah. I'm sure that you have had plenty of that. It does not mean that all surfer, suffering turns into compassion. Why is suffering such a great teacher for being compassionate? Yeah. I mean, so compassion is a, is a, is a tough word, right? I mean, for, for some people it can, it can mean this sort of saccharine, unhelpful, um, 
this sort of bleeding heart idea. What, when I'm using the word compassion, what I mean specifically is your ability. So like you, you see someone who's suffering, whether it's suffering in you or suffering in another person. And what I, what I, when I'm using the word compassion, what I mean is that you're able to be there, be present in a way that has this, both this care and this openness and sort of um, ability to, to just be there with them. And in that way, we can understand that every time I experience suffering in my own life, if I'm able to, whatever, to whatever degree I'm able to overcome that, I'm learning what does it take to, to face suffering in a way that's helpful. It's like every, every painful experience is an opportunity for me to learn how to overcome that. And every time I do, I now know more. I now have greater skills to be able to be present with whoever is suffering in my life, to actually be able to, in a painful moment like the one I described initially, in a moment like that, that I could be there in a helpful way um, rather than just kind of being lost in my own reactivity. It's it's certainly uh, an opportunity for people to how do I want to say this catch themselves in the moment. You know that's all we've got is each and every moment, and it's the learning lessons that our listeners have. Um, you know, to almost think about their emotions and feelings. You know, we say, yeah. are you reactive? Are you proactive? A lot of people just react, right? Yeah. They don't really give it a lot of thought. Now, you mentioned in the book that dukkha happens and that suffering is the first noble truth of Buddhism. And actually, you say that Thich Nhat Hanh has kind of adjusted those noble truths just a tad. What are those four noble truths and how can you help our listeners deal that? How can they help our listeners deal with their own suffering? Yeah. So, Probably the most foundational teaching in Buddhism um, is the Four Noble Truths. It's it's uh, supposedly the first teaching that the Buddha gave, and then many people believe it's also the last teaching that he gave before he died. Um, the way that Thich Han translates the Four Noble Truths is the first one is that everyone suffers. And it's the idea that Suffering is inevitable in life, and it, it's um, there, there's no one who can go through their lives without ever suffering. The second one is that suffering has causes. The third is that well-being is also possible. And the fourth is that well-being also has causes. So if we understand the causes of suffering and the causes of well-being, then it's possible for us to develop greater well-being in our lives, to sort of not continue to, um, to feed into the causes of suffering and to make a conscious choice to develop greater well-being. And in many ways, when we think about what are the causes of well-being, what I'd say is uh, foundationally, or at least like kind of in my life, there are two 
primary types of practices that are about the creation of well-being. The first one is about being able to pay attention to what's beautiful in life. So when we talk about the world is really fucked up, and I, and yeah, and I'm not going to argue uh, in any way that that that's um, an irrational worldview. But at the same time, there's also a lot that's beautiful in the world, and that if we learn how to focus our attention, sort of consciously point our attention to sort of not ignore what's beautiful or, or um, those kind of conditions for happiness that exist in our lives that already exist. That's one really important type of practice. Um, so the idea is that a lot of us seek happiness by trying to improve the sort of what's happening around us in our lives. Instead, this is a practice of being able to just recognize and pay attention to the conditions for happiness that are already here. Conditions like your breath, that you're alive in this moment. Just being able to slow down and recognize the kind of the, the freedom that you have in this moment-to-moment -moment way. The second part of what we might call the, the sort of conditions for well-being is that when suffering arises inevitably, we don't make it worse by hating it, by pathologizing it, by trying to avoid it, but instead we know how to embrace it with love, with compassion. Mm -hmm. Basically, we can just we can understand that what suffering is is a request for love and compassion. Just sort of like a, an expression of needing love and compassion. And when we just offer our own distress or the distress in other people, that type of love and compassion, we we can see that suffering is transformed. Yeah, I think it it's an opportunity. You know, I do a lot of podcasts on creative thinking and problem solving and people in the business world, and there probably couldn't be a better thing or opportunity for people who get into conflict or trying to resolve problems um, to think about. This, their own suffering they're creating as a result of the amount of energy they're putting on it um, versus trying to learn from it. You know, it's that we always say that what you resist will persist, right? It's an easy way to look at it. You, you tell a story in the book about your Occupy Wall Street where there's a connection, in my estimation, between the fear yeah. and suffering. And yeah. you were supposed to ease the tension, the protesters in the park and the mayor had called on, I, I, it was you, and you're fearful about it. You were fearful about addressing the audience. And yeah. that, uh, what did you learn from that experience about your own fear and your own suffering in that yeah. moment? Now, it all turned out in the end, it was, it yeah. was okay. But um, obviously, this was a big event in your life and a big opportunity for you to learn from just what occurred. Uh, try and ex explain that to the listeners, if you would. Yeah. So, so the story there is um, there was a dur during kind of like the height of the Occupy Wall Street protests in New York, the um, mayor. The, so Michael Bloomberg put out a call saying that the 
Zuccotti Park was going to be, um, everyone was going to be evicted the next morning at like, you know, 8 or 9 a.m. And so in response, we had sort of one of the largest gatherings ever in Zuccotti Park, and I was asked to sort of co-facilitate the General Assembly. What that looked like was tens of thousands of people crowded together into this park trying to have a discussion about what are we going to do it, you know we're sort of penned in on all sides by police and riot gear what are we going to do if they advance and start arresting everybody and just kind of how to stay safe uh, what do people need to know and in that moment there were a lot of people who had never experienced anything like that before and so really wanting to make sure that we were able to have as much equanimity, as much calmness, as, as much um, sort of consciousness as possible so that we didn't make a bad situation worse. Um, so as I was sort of standing up on this rock wall next to um, Nicole Cardi, who was the other person who was uh, facilitating, the thing that I became aware of was the amount of fear and despair that was sort of in all of the faces that I was looking at. And I think that we can relate to this in, in any moment of leadership or facilitation when you're at the front of a group, recognizing that whatever energy you put out really affects people. It's going to be amplified. And so if there's a way for you to be able to look at the situation that you're in and kind of model openness, freedom, um, this kind of equanimity of, of we don't know what's going to happen and that's okay. We'll deal with it as it's happening. So what I did in that moment, what my practice was, is a little bit of what we're describing here. The first thing that I did was I recognized this is not how I'm feeling at all. Instead, I'm feeling a tremendous amount of anxiety. And what I did then was I came back to, to pay attention to the anxiety as sensation in my body. It was a tightness in my chest, in my throat. And I just allowed that physiological sensation to be there. I didn't make it a trigger. I didn't make it sort of something that was wrong. I basically just said, it's okay for my body to be having this response right now. It makes a lot of sense. And took a few breaths, just allowing my body to be how it is. Then after a few breaths like this, I directed compassion toward the suffering in me. And what that sounded like was just sort of saying to myself, I see that you're afraid of things going badly. And that's because you just want everything, you know, you want what's best for all these people. And that's a beautiful quality that you have. So it's basically kind of like recognizing what I would call the beautiful humanity in any of our responses. And if you can see that, and you can see that in a way that allows you to feel love and compassion, then all of a sudden the distress starts to let go. And it's kind of through that I was able to see 
all of these people who had sacrificed their own safety in order to come together and try to make the world better. And I was able to move from a place of being afraid of what might go wrong to a place of really deeply appreciating and loving all these people who had gotten up at, you know, four or five in the morning to get out here to, because they cared about trying to make the world better. Yeah. And it was a shift in your perspective. You know, it's almost, we, in psychology, you're a psychologist, you, you, you reframe the situation, right? You, you look yeah. at it differently. You, I wouldn't say put on rose colored glasses, but you're saying, you know, yeah. if, if I can bring this in and understand why this is occurring, everything starts to look different. Um, yeah. And, and you, you talk about John Dune as being one of the top five philosophers. I think you then said, well, probably the top three. And explain that Buddhist philosophy doesn't really concern itself um, with what we deserve. It's concerned with what actually happens, why it happens, and how we can act to create less suffering in the world. What actions would you kind of inform our listeners might be a great way for them to learn how to deal with suffering, take it in, and reframe it? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really what, the, one of the things, so if the, if the question, if the question is sort of like, what can we do to make the world better? That's really kind of all I think about. It's something that I, that I think is incredibly important. And from my perspective, there's sort of two things that I'd want to say for listeners. And the first one is think about your capacity to face suffering as, first of all, a prerequisite for being able to have any type of a positive impact in the world. It's like the degree to which you're able to look at and face a problem without getting overwhelmed is obviously kind of like something that has to be there for you to be able to, to act helpfully about it. And so when we recognize that that's a capacity, then we become motivated to try to, to grow and train ourselves to get better at that. I want to be able to improve my ability to face problems without getting overwhelmed, without getting harmed by them. And I believe that the best way of training yourself in that is by just paying attention to the distress, to the suffering that comes up in your own life. We all have plenty of anxiety, anger, grief. And as those things come up, in your life, if you're able to stop and learn how to make friends with them, learn how to, the way that I want to say it is just to embrace those experiences of suffering with love and compassion. Developing self-compassion, especially around your suffering, as you're able to do that, you'll find that your ability to face problems in the world also grows. And then in that respect, to really let yourself feel, just be, um, to follow your, like, whatever in the world, what, whatever people, whatever problems feel moving to you, to allow yourself to really get involved, to use that capacity. Like, as you're developing this capacity to get in touch with joy and to face suffering with freedom, to share it. To don't don't keep it for yourself. Like, think about 
who is in need of whatever skills or capacities that you've you've developed in yourself and share them um, so kind of get involved in whatever problems are moving to you well and i think what you said is and i'll interpret it my own way that you know in suffering there can be freedom um yeah i know it does not seem it i think it's the word we use to describe it um yeah and the challenge is that it is the word suffering and yeah. if, if we had another word to describe suffering, you know, hey, just call it your life lessons, you know? Yeah. Um, if these life lessons that you are going to have happen, um, whether it's a death of a loved one or sickness in a family or financial issues or alcoholism or drug, drugs or whatever it is, you know, yeah. um, if you look at it as a lesson to grow from and learn from and to become more compassionate from, um, that's what yeah. this book is all about. And I just want to let yeah. my listeners know, you know, How to Stay Human in a Fucked Up World uh, by Tim Desmond is a great book. It's great practices for real life. There's lots of stories in this book as well that help you to understand better. Um, but the point being made is that mindfulness in the moment can create compassion while you're suffering. Um and Tim, you do an eloquent job of explaining that. Is there any one last thing you'd like to leave for our listeners before we wrap up the podcast? Yeah, uh, that um, whatever whatever practice you develop, whatever kind of um, capacities that you develop in your life, yeah, to, to don't keep them for yourself. Um, share them with people who need them. I think just being compassionate to yourself, um, self-love. Um, yeah. You know, we frequently will go into our own pity party and yeah. that really doesn't help you or anybody else that you're supposed to be helping while they might be dealing with it. So yeah. um, sometimes it's hard to say, stay strong during these times. And yeah. I don't think it's a matter of strength. It's a matter of how deeply um, conscious you are and how deeply yeah. compassionate you can become. Um, yeah. Truly an honor having you on the show. Thanks for spending your time with our listeners. We'll put a link to the book. We'll also put a link to Tim's website where he does have a free course that'll be up by the time that this gets to the listeners. So do mm -hmm. check out that link as well. Uh, Tim, thanks so much for being on. Thank you. Namaste. This podcast is brought to you by Jennifer Gluckow and Jeffrey Gittimer, the hosts of the Seller Die podcast. Please listen to podcasts number 722 and 723, where Greg speaks with both Jeffrey and Jennifer about their books, Little Red Book of Selling, and Sells in a New York Minute. During these interviews, you will learn more about what is required to become the best salesperson you are able to become, plus tips and ideas about what to implement into your daily routine. Greg also encourages you to listen to their podcast show called Sell or Die. There, you will receive insights about selling with interviews done daily with thought leaders in the field of sales and marketing. Please listen to podcasts 722 and 723 with Jeffrey Gittimer and Jennifer Gluckow. You can learn more about what they're doing by visiting www.sellerdie.com.
www.cellsinanyminute.com. Also by visiting www.cellsinanyminute.com or by visiting www.gitomer.com. Thanks for listening.